0: And this evening we're going to look together at verses 1 to 5 of that chapter. Galatians 3, uh, 1 to 5. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So I ask again, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? This is God's word. And I've called uh, this message, Every Christian's Testimony. Every Christian's testimony. Uh, A baptism service is uh, one of the joys of church life. Uh, To see someone uh, commit their lives to Jesus Christ is an immense joy for us all. Uh, And it's a wonderful witness to our community of the power of God to save people from their sins. And the way that we practice baptism here involves the person being baptized giving a testimony of how they came to believe the gospel now when we uh, prepare people for baptism uh, i for my experience the two questions we get asked the most is this number one how long am i under the water for <laughs> which always is always quite funny and it's never very long so if you can you know ever thinking about baptism it's very quick uh, but number two My testimony is a bit boring, isn't it, is the other thing that we hear quite a lot. People get more fearful of their testimony, actually, than than of going under the water. But the reason we want people to give their testimony is because as a church, as we're all involved in the baptism, we want to be able to affirm as a body that we believe that this person is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And testimonies are always exciting to hear. There is no such thing as a boring testimony. It's amazing how God brings anyone to faith in the Son of God in such individual ways. Uh, We all have our own experiences and stories of how God has worked in our lives. Each of us is an an example of how Jesus goes after the lost sheep, the one that went astray. And it's exciting. But so many people think, but my testimony is boring. Because there are testimonies that that are seemingly really exciting and are exciting. You know the ones I mean where uh, someone has had a disastrous and disordered life of crime and drugs and whatever. And then they they came to know Jesus and everything's changed and it's a, a, a great miracle. And these are exciting. I mean, later this year, Uh, we are having an evening with a man called Billy McCurry who has a testimony just like that. And they're wonderful to hear. However, all testimonies are exciting because the main thing that makes them exciting is what we are testifying to. Every testimony of someone who is baptized in this church includes this. Jesus Christ has died for my sins and is risen from the dead and I believe this is true. That's what we are testifying to. And that is what makes every single testimony exciting. No matter the story of how you got there, the most exciting thing of any testimony is Jesus Christ. What he has done in saving us from our sins. And so before someone goes into the, uh, under the water to be baptized, we always ask them two questions. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? And then do you promise to obey Him as your Master and Lord? And the answer to those two questions are yes, otherwise they have to get out of the water. But those two questions being answered yes are the most exciting parts of any testimony at all. And so then we say on your confession of Jesus Christ as your Savior, and your allegiance to him as your Lord, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These are the main things. And we have to be careful we don't get overexcited over the wrong things in a testimony. Because there are many unbelievers who have very exciting stories of change in their life, just as a a Christian might. So we hear many rags to riches stories. We Here, many a drug addict has turned their life around and has become a charity worker or a billionaire. These are exciting and and good stories, but they are not as exciting even as the most normal Christian testimony because they don't testify to the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. So don't ever tell me your testimony is boring. It never is boring because it's about Jesus And he's the most exciting and awesome person in the universe. And it's testifying to the crucified and risen Christ that makes every Christian's testimony, in one sense, the same. We come to that point from different places, but in the end, our testimony is the same. I believe in the crucified and risen Jesus as the Savior for my sin. He is my Lord. Paul summarizes this really in Galatians chapter 2 and verses 15 and 16. Just look back at what Paul says about how we are made right with God. This is, again, our testimony. We read another testimony in Galatians 1 a minute ago, but Galatians two fifteen and 16, We, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. That's really the the key verse in, in the book of Galatians. And the problem in Paul's letter that the Galatians are having as churches is that they are tempted to abandon this testimony that I made right with God only by faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, to a different gospel that Paul says is no gospel at all, that is a gospel of works. They were being taught that their testimony was not good enough. Their testimony of faith in Christ was not enough. They needed to add uh, Old Testament Jewish law if they really wanted God to be happy with them. If they really wanted to stay in God's kingdom, they needed to add on all these rules and regulations. And the problem is when our testimony changes from what Christ has done on the cross and in his resurrection to what I have done or what I am doing or what I will do, then we begin to live lives that are not Christian. And they end up miserable because we've no assurance of of being right with God because we wonder whether we've done enough. Or we end up being proud about what we've done. Ultimately, believing these false teachers that Jesus isn't enough means we are not believing the true gospel and really we're not Christians. And this letter of Paul is a repudiation of that. He is arguing that the Christian is justified by faith in Jesus Christ and that no works of the law, no human achievement can ever add to what Jesus has done. Now, in a sense, Paul could have ended his letter at the end of chapter 2 and said, there you go. That's the, the main point. But Paul wants to develop and to argue his case and to develop the implications for us. because He knows that we need this message hammered home. We need to be reminded again and again of what Jesus has done. And so in chapter 3, he begins a detailed argument of his case that we are saved By faith in Jesus Christ and not by works of the law. He said it in chapter 2. He develops and argues for it in chapter 3. And we need to hear this argument because all of us are tempted by the devil's old trick of, Did God really say? Is it really true? Is Jesus really enough? And all Christians, all of us, hear that from the devil And we need to constantly be reminded, yes, it is true. Jesus Christ is enough. And so Paul argues for what salvation is, faith in Jesus Christ. And then later on in his letter, he develops the implications of that and how we live for Christ. So in these verses, verses 1 to 5 of chapter 3, Paul takes the Galatians back to their testimonies. He takes them back to their experience of coming to know God and receiving the Holy Spirit. How did it happen? And it's always helpful for us as Christians, when we're tempted to doubt and worry, to look back and be reminded of what God has done in our lives in the past. How did we come to know God? And Paul does that right here in verses 1 to 5. And he has two main points from their experience to show that their experience reveals that they were saved by faith and not by works. And interestingly, what Paul does is he he does this through six rapid-fire questions, where where the answers to these questions are so obvious that the readers who attempted to follow the false teachers are made to feel, I think, what Paul describes them as twice, foolish. You are fools if you think you are saved in any other way but Christ alone. And so there's two main arguments uh, from their experience in verses 1 to 5. First of all, we become Christians by believing the message of Christ crucified. And number two, we remain Christians by believing the message of Christ crucified. So number one, we become Christians by believing the message of Christ crucified. Paul begins in verse 1 with a kind of, of cry of anguish or of despair Uh, you foolish Galatians Uh, many versions uh, have the word oh as a kind of moan Uh, you know you know like I can't believe it oh my goodness that kind of thing oh you foolish Galatians he's angry he's emotional he's upset it's almost as if he just can't believe what's happening it's similar to chapter one where Paul described himself as astonished I'm astonished at you In calling them foolish here, Paul is is not questioning their intellect. But the way that they've not applied what they know about the gospel. When they choose to disobey God, when we choose to disobey God, it's, it's not an intellectual issue. It's not like we don't know what God wants. We do know. And so we're fools. Because we know better, but disobey anyway. That'd be a good definition of foolishness, wouldn't it? Disobeying God when we know what is right. But Paul's only explanation for them listening to the false teachers and and going against what they know to be true is that they've been bewitched in some way. Uh, The word bewitched is literally uh, translated to be given the evil eye, it's a, a, a pagan magical image. Uh, one that would be, would be familiar to the believers in the church. In fact, many of these Galatians may well have experienced those kinds of, of magical things uh, when they were living in paganism, which they were converted from. Now there is an element here of, of Satan being at work. Uh, he does cause doubt and distress and despair in the Christian, but his work is not usually described as being bewitching. They'd not literally been bewitched by an evil eye. But what Paul's doing is he's saying, I'm struggling to grasp how you can be so foolish. How can you be like this? What other reason could there be? Maybe you're bewitched. And he's struggling, especially because look at the the end of verse 1. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. There's a bit of a play on words here, I think. There's the evil eye of bewitching and the fact that Jesus Christ is clearly portrayed before their eyes as crucified. The word here for clearly portrayed means to put up on a billboard, a banner for everyone to see. It's a little bit like when you, if you go to Piccadilly Circus in London, you see all those big neon signs that have all those those advertisements flashing. Well, imagine all of those signs advertising one thing, the message of Christ crucified, clearly portrayed for everyone to see at Piccadilly Circus. I mean, that would be brilliant if uh, if that ever happened. I can't imagine it ever happening. But that's the kind of thing Paul's describing here. His message was so clear, it was like on a big neon sign in Piccadilly Circus that you can't miss when you're there staring at it in the dark when it's all lit up. And there was one message, one advertisement, if you like. Jesus Christ crucified. That's the kind of clarity that Paul's talking about. A big banner. You can't miss it. I've proclaimed to you Christ crucified so clearly, I can't believe that you're believing anything else. Now, of course, Paul didn't literally go around like waving banners, but he did go around preaching. And it was his preaching that was clearly portraying the message. And because, we'll, we'll, we'll see, because we will see that the message is Christ crucified, I would say the portrayal also involved the Lord's Supper, where week by week they were remembering Christ crucified. The message was clear in word and in sacrament Jesus Christ has been crucified. So we see that the message was clear. But let's think for a moment, what is the message of Christ crucified? When when Paul speaks of Christ crucified, as he does in other letters, he's speaking of the sum of what the death of Jesus means for us. So yes, it includes a a description of what Jesus has done on the cross, what happened in history, but it involves what that means for us. So it includes that, that Jesus is God incarnate. He's the one who died for us. It includes that he was sinless and he didn't deserve to die for our sins. It includes that he submitted to it willingly as a love offering for us. It includes that he was dying in our place as a substitute, a sacrifice for our sins. It includes that it was the plan of God for him to die. It was no accident of history. It includes that no human being can be saved from God's judgment apart from trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. It includes the fact that he didn't remain dead, but on the third day he rose again, conquering death for us. And it includes that God was pleased with the sacrifice that Jesus was made, proven by the resurrection from the dead. That's the message of Christ crucified. And Paul presented this truth so clearly. He told them, Jesus has died for your sins. There is no way to be right with God but through him. It was clear. No doubt others, as well as Paul, had been preaching this week by week. They'd been taking the bread and the cup to remember it. Clearly, they had seen Jesus Christ crucified. And I believe that those of you who have been here for more than a couple of weeks or so have heard the message of Christ crucified. I say a couple of weeks because in that time you would have had the opportunity to hear the word preached, sung the word, heard it read, uh, heard it prayed, and because of the couple of weeks we take the Lord's Supper, you've even seen it in the bread and the cup. Christ crucified is clearly portrayed. And in this church we are committed to to clearly presenting to you Christ crucified. And Paul has presented this message to them, and so in verse 2, he has a question. Look at what he says. I would like to learn just one thing from you. I think what he means here is that the answer to this question, this one thing, will refute what the false teachers are saying about how to become a Christian, how to live for God. And this is is the question Paul asks. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? So to receive the, the Spirit means that when someone becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in that person. Later on in Galatians, Paul is going to speak much about what life in the Spirit is about. But here... It's his way of describing becoming a Christian. How did it happen, Paul says? Was it by works of the law? Did you earn it? Or was it by believing the message I preached to you about Christ crucified? Now we know from the book of Acts that the way people received the Holy Spirit was through the preaching of the word. We saw it read in Acts chapter 2, didn't we? Peter preached, people believed, they received the Holy Spirit. If you read Acts chapter 10, the exact same thing happens with Cornelius and his household. God appeared to Cornelius in a dream, but it was only when Peter came and preached to him that him and his household received the Holy Spirit in response to the message of the gospel of Christ crucified. That was true of the Galatians. They received the Spirit not by works of the law. The answer to the question is obvious. They received it because they believed the word of Christ crucified. Even the fact that they received it uh, speaks against earning it. Because to receive means to to gratefully have as a gift. You can't earn a gift. It's not a gift. It's a payment. They didn't earn it. They believed in the work Christ had done for them on their behalf. That's how they received the Holy Spirit. And so I ask you, what about you? Have you believed in the message of Christ crucified? That Jesus Christ has died in your place for your sins. That you can come into God's kingdom not by your own efforts, but by trusting in his work on the cross. Let me say this clearly. Christ has died for your sins. And except through asking him for forgiveness and trusting that he is enough, you will never be right with God. So come to Christ. Believe the message. But in applying this as a church, we need to be ensuring that our message is both clear and it remains Christ crucified. So let's pray as a church for the clarity of the message in all the places we teach in our church. From here at the pulpit, but also in our Sunday school and our children's work, and when we have conversations with people, let's pray that we are clear and that we are clear about Christ and all that he has done. But there's also a responsibility for us as a congregation to listen to the message, isn't there? There is a war for our souls going on each time the word is proclaimed. Are we ready to hear the message? Are you willing to listen to what Christ has done for you? And also, uh, finally on on this point, I think it's a a privilege for us as a church, a real privilege to be able to, to support works like the Wycliffe Bible Translators, like the work of Pastor Training International, who are seeking to make the message of Christ crucified known to people in Mali and in Uganda through their work. So let's, as a church, continue to pray for the work of those organizations as they seek to do what we're doing here, clearly present Christ crucified. So Paul's big point here is to have the Galatians think back to their experience of conversion. Was it by works or by faith in Jesus that they were saved? And if it's by faith, which it is, then we become Christians by believing the message of Christ crucified. And if we become Christians in this way, then secondly, we remain Christians by believing the message of Christ crucified. Because the problem in Galatia was that the false teachers were claiming that believing the message was was fine at first, but if you really wanted to make progress, if you really wanted God to like you, then you had to observe the Old Testament law as well. And Paul begins in verse 3 with the same exclamation as verse 1. Are you so foolish? Notice here how Paul uses the terms beginning and finishing in verse 3. Do you see that there? So he's saying only a fool would think that you can begin by means of the Spirit and finish by means of the flesh. Means of the Spirit can be defined as the way the Spirit enters your life. That we've seen is by believing the message of Christ crucified. Means of the flesh, on the other hand, can be defined as human effort or achievement. Paul is saying it is absurd to begin with faith and end with human effort. To illustrate uh, what this is like, I want you to imagine putting... An apple tree in your garden, you, you put the seed in it, you water the, the seed and it begins to grow. And as it grows, you begin to expect there would be fruit coming from the tree. In fact, you'd expect there to be apples coming from the apple tree. But what you do as the tree begins to grow is you go out and buy some apples and you go down to the common and you you pick up some branches and you go home and you start to nail them to your tree. You nail the apples and you nail the branches because you think, well, I've got to do that in order to get more apples. I mean, it's absurd, isn't it? What a stupid thing to do. Or in Paul's words, are you so foolish? Because if the apple tree has been planted and it's been watered and it's growing, it's going to produce apples, it's going to produce the fruit. It's absurd to be going and starting to nail the fruit on yourself. And our salvation works in a similar way. We, we don't just start off with belief and faith in Christ, and then later on as we move on, we have to start working really hard to make God like us again. Rules and regulations are just external things that are like the artificial branches and apples we're nailing on. Rather, we are connected to Christ, and then, as we apply the gospel to our lives, we'll show fruit in our lives. Applying the gospel to our lives is a way of saying that we continue to believe that Christ has died for my sins, and he's risen to give me a new life, and that is what I need in order to be right with God, and I need to continue to believe that in order to bear fruit for God. Now, we'll look more closely in Galatians later on at what that fruit looks like and and how we produce that fruit. But for now, Paul is saying we've got to continue to believe that Jesus Christ has died for my sins and risen from the dead and continue to believe that that is enough. Because true belief impacts life, doesn't it? If I believe there's a fire in my living room, I'm not going to just stay in bed and not tell my family. If I believe that taking this medicine is going to make me well, I'm going to take the medicine, or not if you think it will harm you. If I truly believe that faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to be right with God and the only way to life, then it will impact how I live. I will live by faith in him. I will trust that what Jesus says is true, and because it's true, I'm going to follow what he says as the way to life. How often... The problems in our Christian lives are there because we don't apply the gospel to ourselves. We, we don't preach the message to ourselves of Christ crucified. We forget what he's done for us. Now, we'll unpack that more as we go through Galatians. But for now, I just would maybe ask us to consider at least one area of life. And that is that we can profess that we believe that we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ but function with a workspace based lifestyle. So we're unable to rest. We think that everything is down to me. We believe that the church or my workplace or my home is just indispensable without me around. It won't function without me. God's kingdom will just fall apart if I am not there. Now that's not to say we should not be busy and we shouldn't work hard and, and all those kinds of things. Of course we should. But so so often we're so busy that we don't rest and we begin to believe that it's all down to me. And so often we want to justify ourselves to God and to others by what we do. Look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at how much I'm doing for the church. Look at how much I do for God. And even, even between us and God, we can even say to God, look God, I've done all this for you. You must be really pleased with me. So therefore, God, you, you should give me this, this, and this. You see how it can go? That's foolish, Paul says. If we believe in Christ crucified at the beginning, but stop relying on that later on, then Paul says in verse 4 that our experience is in vain. Look at verse 4. Have you experienced so much in vain experienced is sometimes translated as suffer uh, as in their suffering is in vain if they no longer believe in the gospel but in light of the work of the spirit being mentioned in verse five i think experienced is the best word the point here is that they've experienced much as as a church they they've served they've loved they have suffered they've been baptized they've they've seen conversions and so on is all this now in vain? If they forsake Christ now, what's the point of it all? Because in vain means pointless. But Paul is not so sure, he says, if it really was in vain. In other words, he's hopeful that it's not all pointless, that they'll turn back to the truth. Because it's one of the saddest parts of church life, is it not? When we see those who once professed faith now renounce faith, Who began by faith in Jesus Christ and now have wandered away. Sometimes people serve so well and so long and experience so much and they walk away. And we feel like Paul here, was it all in vain? But it's a warning for us that if we start to deviate from the truth of the gospel, if we begin to rely on ourselves and forget the truth that we're saved by faith in what Christ has done, then we are in danger of walking that same path of apostasy. We remain Christians by believing the message of Christ crucified. Every day, we've got to remind ourselves, he has died for my sins, he has risen from the dead. Now, when I play, uh, I play squash, quite often, uh, I get into a bit of a funk and end up playing rubbish. And often, I play rubbish because I am rubbish, (laughs) but sometimes I play rubbish because in my mind I'm trying to think of so many things I should be doing that I forget the basics. Look at the ball, get to the tee. And so what I have to do is tell myself those two things, Steve, look at the ball, get to the tee. And when I start going back to basics, things start then falling into place. And it's similar in our Christian lives. We need to regularly just go back to the basics. He's died for my sins. He's risen from the dead. He's coming back again for me. And when we start remembering those things over and over again, other things do start to fall into place. It's when we forget those things that things start falling apart. And so Paul summarizes in verse 5 by repeating his question from verse 2 but in another way. So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Paul has shown that we received the spirit in the first place by believing the message of Christ crucified. And so it makes sense that we remain by continuing to believe the message of Christ crucified. And so that the answer to verse 5, that final question, is that the experience of the Galatians proves that they received the spirit by believing what they heard about, the, about Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so this means, brother and sister, let's continually, daily remind ourselves of what Christ has done. We need to be reading the scriptures. We need to be praying. We need to be taking the Lord's Supper. We need to be talking to each other about Christ. We need to be daily coming before God and confessing that we believe in the message of Christ crucified that he has so clearly shown us. I've heard many testimonies in my time as a Christian and all of them are exciting. Uh, some of you in this room, we've, we've baptized you. We've, we've heard your testimonies. It's so exciting to hear. Because the testimony is simply this. I believe that Jesus Christ has died for my sins and he is my savior and Lord. And I would ask you, is, is that your testimony? Is it your testimony? Let's all recommit to him today. Well, our next song uh, speaks of the word of God being the firm foundation for our faith. How firm a foundation You saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. And after we've sung this together, we will uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper, where we'll be reminded again of Christ crucified. So let's stand as we sing together. seats.